Hello, friends. I'm Marissa Blackwood, and welcome to All Things Murder. Welcome to All Things Murder, the show that dives into real true crime cases that inspired pop culture movies and shows we know today. I'm Marissa Blackwood, and today we're going to be talking about The Stranger's inspiration, The Ketty Cabin Murders. So listener's discretion is advised. If you haven't seen The Strangers, I highly recommend this movie. I love this movie, even with my fear of home invasions. If you have a fear of home invasions, I don't recommend this movie because you will have nightmares and I do not want that. For Strangers, is definitely a psychological home invasion horror film. Basically, two people are in a trailer, some random girl knocks on their house asking for Tara if she's home. Obviously, at the wrong house, they take advantage of this and they just full-on torture these two innocent people. So yes, if you have a fear of home invasions, please do not watch this movie. In July 1979, Glenna Susan, or Sue Sharp, who was born on March 29th, 1945 in Springfield, Massachusetts, left her abusive husband, James Sharp, and took their five children from Connecticut to Ketty, Northern California. The family moved into trailer number 28, where she resided with her children, her 15-year-old son, John, or Johnny, born November 16, 1965, 14-year-old daughter, Sheila, 12-year-old daughter, Tina, born July 22, 1968, and two younger sons, Rick, who was 10, and Greg, who was five. Now, Cabin 28 technically had two bedrooms, but they converted the basement to make it three bedrooms. Now, her oldest son, Johnny, took the unfinished basement, and her youngest boys, Rick and Greg, took a bedroom, and Sue, Sheila, and Tina all shared a room. Now, Johnny was in the basement, which is only accessible through a back door outside, and the family always kept the back door unlocked so that he could enter the home whenever he needed to. The town of Ketty was once a bustling town with a railroad terminal, and after the terminal closed, many of the residents left and the town fell into despair, where later on they tried to reinvent themselves and promoted them as a resort town with opportunities for camping, hiking, and other recreation. And unfortunately, the town's attempt to reinvent itself fell short. On April 11th, 1981, Around 11.30 a.m., Sue, Sheila, and Greg drove from their friend's house, the Meeks family, to pick up Rick, who had baseball tryouts at Gainser Field in Quincy. They happened to come across John and his friend Dana Wingate, hitchhiking their way back to Kenny, where they picked the two kids up. Now, Sheila had planned to spend the night at the Seabolt's house, since she was attending church with them the following day, and the Seabolt's was just adjacent from her home in the same resort. Sheila left home after 8 p.m., and at 9.30 p.m., Tina returned home after watching TV from the Seabolt's house, leaving just the remaining children at home with their mom, the younger boy's friend Justin Smart, and Dana Wingate alone in house number 28. The Murders On April 12, 1981, around 7 a.m., Sheila was getting ready to attend church with the Seabolt family when she realized she left her church clothes at home so naturally, she went back to get them. When she opened the door, she was horrified 
to find the bodies of her mother, brother John, and her brother's friend, Dana Wingate. All three had been bound with medical tape and electrical cords and covered in blood on the floor of the front room. Sheila immediately ran back to her friend's house for help, and her friend's dad retrieved the three unharmed boys through their bedroom window so they didn't have to see the scene in the front room and proceeded to call police. But Sheila's younger sister, Tina, was nowhere to be found. What was super strange and, and police noticed as well was that in an adjoining bedroom was the two youngest boys, Ricky and Greg, as well as their friend, Justin, who had spent the night. All three were unharmed and all three claimed they had slept through the entire massacre, which was only a few feet away from their beds. Interesting. Now, I'm a heavy sleeper, but I'm pretty sure I'd wake up to somebody screaming. I'm just saying. Several of the suspected murdered weapons were found at the scene, including two knives and a hammer, which were covered in blood, and one of the knives, which was a steak knife, had been bent at roughly 30 degrees. Evidence from the blood splatter indicated that all three victims had been murdered in the living room. Sue was discovered lying on her side near the living room sofa. She was naked from the waist down and gagged with a blue bandana and her own underwear, which had been secured with tape. She had injuries consistent with the struggle and had an imprint of the bud of a .880 pellet gun on the side of her head. She had been stabbed multiple times in the chest and her throat had been slit. John was closest to the front door. He was face up. His hands were blood covered and bound with medical tape and his throat too had also been slit. His friend Dana was on the floor beside him on his stomach. His head was badly damaged and as though bashed with a blunt object before he was strangled to death. Now authorities interviewed neighbors and the boys who were inside the house when the attack occurred, but there was no eyewitnesses. A couple living in a nearby house number 16 was awakened at 1.15 a.m. by what sounded like muffled screaming, but they didn't realize anyone was in danger, so they just went back to sleep. They went back to sleep. You hear muffled screaming and you did not call the cops? Come on! Come on, people! Tina's jacket, shoes, and a toolbox containing various tools were missing from the house, which showed no indication of forced entry. Rick and Greg claimed that they were asleep when, you know, the others were killed in the next room. However, their friend Justin was not sure. Justin began having vivid dreams in the days after the murders, and they decided to put him under hypnosis. And under hypnosis, he explained in his dreams, he saw two men in the front room of the cabin, one with the mustache and short hair, the other was clean shaven with long hair, both wore glasses, one of the men was holding a small knife and a hammer. Justin said Sue was talking to the men when John and Dana arrived home, and the discussion suddenly erupted into a violent attack. Justin also said that he witnessed one of the men stabbing Sue, and during the attack, Tina came out of her room, and that's when one of the men carried Tina out of the house before returning back without her to finish the job. Based on Justin's descriptions, composite sketches of the two unknown men were produced by a Harlan Embry, who was a man with no artistic ability and no training in forensic sketching. 
Like, are you trying to fuck this case up? Congratulations. Achieved. It was never even explained why, with access to the Justice Department and the FBI's top forensics artists, law enforcement chose to use an amateur who would often volunteer local police. That's great. Thank you for the volunteer work previously. This is a huge murder case, so let's just try to fuck it up using an amateur. Why not? Based on the descriptions, the suspects were being described as being in their late 20s to early 30s. One was around 5'11 to 6'2 with dark blonde hair and the other between 5'6 and 5'10 with greased black hair with both men wearing gold frame sunglasses. The sheriff at the time of the murders, Doug Thomas, and his deputy, Lieutenant Don Stoy, could not identify a motive. They were just saying the murders at Ketty Cabin 28 appeared to be random acts of cruelty. Tina Sharp found. So Tina's disappearance was initially investigated by the FBI as a possible abduction, and on reported on April 29th, 1981, the FBI suddenly backed off the search because the California's Department of Justice said they were doing an adequate job and made the FBI's presence unnecessary. Like, you guys, take the day off. We got this. Yeah. Great thinking. Authorities searched the area with the dogs, covering a five-mile radius around the house, yet they still came up with nothing. And on April 22nd, 1984, Three years and 11 days after the murders, a bottle collector discovered the cranium portion of a human skull and part of a jawbone at Camp 18 near Feather Falls, which was roughly 100 miles from Ketty. Shortly after the discoveries, authorities at the Butte County Sheriff's Office received an anonymous call that identified the remains as belonging to Tina, but the call was not documented in this case. Just infuriating. Forensics confirmed the remains did belong to Tina Sharp in June of 1984. Near the remains, detectives also discovered a blue nylon jacket, a blanket, a pair of Levi Strauss jeans with a missing back pocket, and an empty medical tape dispenser. Suspects. Now, based on Justin's description of the attackers, Detectives identified Martin, or Marty, Smart as one of the primary suspects in the cabin murders. Marty was Justin's stepfather, who claimed that his claw hammer had somehow gone missing from his house around the same time the murders occurred. Interesting. Marty was also providing endless clues in the case that seemed to throw suspicion away from him. I think my neighbor could have done it. Totally not me. Look anywhere else but me, officers. Now, the house where the murder took place was demolished in 2004, but in 2008, there was a documentary crew covering the murders, spoke to Marty's wife, Marilyn Smart, who claimed that she suspected her husband, Martin, and his friend, John, or Bo, Bubity, were responsible for the murders. She claimed on the evening of April 11, 1981, she had left Martin and John at a local bar around 11 p.m. before she went home to go to sleep. And around 2 a.m. on April 12, she stated she woke up to find the two burning an unknown item in the wood stove. Plus, Marilyn found a bloody jacket in their basement, 
which she believed belonged to Tina. Although she gave the jacket to authorities, there is no record that it was entered into evidence. Just so many things about this case that they completely messed up. Sheriff Doug Thomas told documentary crew that he had personally interviewed Martin and that Martin passed a polygraph examination. See, he passed. He's fine. Shortly after the murders and police interviews, Martin left Keddie and went to live in Reno, Nevada, where from there he sent Marilyn a letter ruminating on personal struggles in their marriage, which he confessed with, quote, I've paid the price for your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. Marty also confessed to the murders of Sue and Tina during a therapy session, but claimed he did not have anything to do with the boys. He allegedly told the counselor that Tina was killed to prevent her from identifying him, as she had witnessed the entire thing. Although the therapist alerted authorities, you know, like she should, nothing was reportedly done and he was never charged or arrested for the Keddie Cabin murders. This case just makes me so angry. Martin Smart died of cancer in Portland, Oregon in June of 2000, and his friend John, who allegedly had ties to organized crime in Chicago, died there in 1988. On March 24, 2016, a hammer matching the description of the hammer Martin claimed to have lost was discovered in a local pond and was taken into evidence by Plumas County Special Investigator Mike Gamberg. Plumas County Sheriff Greg Hagwood who was 16 years old at the time of the murders and knew the Sharp family personally, stated the location it was found, it could have been intentionally put there. It would have not been accidentally misplaced. Plus, Hagwood also believed that Tina was the central to why the family was killed. And in an interview with ABC 10, he said, you kill three people in a cabin and you leave the remains there to be discovered. I think there was something about Tina that cannot be left there to be discovered. In 2018, both Gamberg and Hagwood said they believe authorities are getting closer to solving this case, yet today it still remains unsolved. Who do you think committed the Keddie Cabin murders? And that's going to conclude today's episode. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I'm Marissa Blackwood, and don't forget to tune in next week for a new All Things Murder, if you dare. horror movies or true crime or perhaps both like myself don't forget to like and subscribe and don't forget to check out my tiktok at sinister marissa